Mr. Yale, it is a great pleasure and a privilege to have this opportunity to interview you. You will be the 30th scholar in the archive. A few of these scholars, like yourself, were born before the Second World War and have helped preserve invaluable memories of the university, the faculty and their colleges during the war and in the unique immediate post-war period. You joined Christ's just after the war and you and your contemporaries were an integral part of the narrative in the faculty's rebuilding during the 50s and 60s and you have memories few others possess. Simultaneously, you embarked on a career which entailed a remarkable research endeavour that focused on understanding aspects of the legacies of two outstanding 17th century legal figures, Lord Mottingham and Matthew Hale. In three seminal volumes, you documented and interpreted the former's contribution to the development of equity, while Hale's work led you into constitutional matters, and in combination with the work of William Fleetwood, an Elizabethan lawyer and politician, an authoritative treatise on the history and jurisdiction of the Admiralty Courts. The latter was a monumental 30-year project with another of our eminent scholars, Michael Pritchard. I hope we can learn about your legal history achievements in a consideration of your scholarly works, but initially, could we focus on your early life and academic career? So starting with your early life, you were born, Mr. Yale, on the 31st of March, 1928. That's right. In the south, the, by Portsmouth, my father was stationed, he was in the army, and uh, went where, of course, the army directed. And he really, really led quite a peripatetic life, moving around and finishing with the Indian army. He and my mother never owned a house, they were always on the move. And my childhood was spent in this house just my grandmother's. I went to, I didn't go to school until I was eight or nine years of age because I was in India for five or six years prior to that. But when I went to school I was <coughs> here locally until I was packed off to Malvern College in Worcestershire in 1942, yes. The Lent term of 1942 I spent at Malvern. And Malvern was then commandeered by the Admiralty and other important people who were bombed out of Bath and were sent packing. And the remarkable thing is that school survived that and uh, went to went went into exile and had to Harrow on the Hill, just outside London, where I spent the rest of my secondary schooling career up until 46, when finally I, I left Harrow on the Hill on account of the. Uh, B1 and B2s. 
in the head. I was always a historian uh, and on the arts side by preference. I had no bent at all for mathematics or the natural sciences. So I was fortunate in that respect because Morvan had a good staff of historians who were quite gifted to teach us, some of them, and I was able to benefit from that. I came to Cambridge via not Christ College but by Queen's College uh, without any serious sense of direction. A great uncle of mine who was keen on genealogies discovered a couple of ancestors who in the 16th century had worked their way from Wales to Cambridge and they'd gone to Queen's College. So to Queen's College I must go. But I wasn't in a position to go to Queen's College unless there was some money to float me there. And much depended upon getting a scholarship. Uh, the school rather advised me against attempting an open scholarship to Cambridge. They thought perhaps I was being a bit overambitious, but needs must, and uh, I had a stab at it in the disastrously cold winter of 46, 47. And I remember in those days one had to attend Cambridge for about three or four days being examined and writing furiously the whole time. And I managed to survive that and gained an open scholarship to Queen's College, which was, as I say, my initiation into Cambridge. So, now, Neil, um, about, it was very, yes, I, uh, you, um, so I didn't go to Christ until 19... Right. That's what's happened. So, um, in those immediate post-war years, when you arrived in Cambridge, was there a feeling of the sort of deprivation of war? Did you get a sense that there were shortages? Well, when I was a freshman, I was one of two persons in the college first year who were not ex-service. All the rest uh, stumped in uh, straight off the boat, as it were, stamping the sand off their boots as they came. They'd all been in um, the services of one sort or another. And the chap who stroked the boat I was in on the river had only six months before been captain of one of Her Majesty's submarines. That was the sort of media in which I was cast as a sort of rather unexperienced schoolboy. And it was quite a challenge actually. On the, in the event I got round to reconciling myself and them to it by um, you know, joining in, in the sporting activities. College. Um, well, uh, there were at that time 
eight newly arrived lecturers in the faculty, um, mm. quite an influx to boost the staff. And I wonder whether you have any memories of them, uh, David Dauber, Robbie Jennings. Yes, I knew them all in a, in a rather distant way, of course. Um, you mentioned some of them on this paper. Um, one or two were quite important in a, in a sense. Old Holland, Harry Holland, was the representative of legal history. As far as I was concerned, he was an influential and important person. He, but he was vice master of Trinity, and he was the only person in the faculty who uh, had survived Maitland as a lecturer. He'd heard Maitland lecture. And he himself was a very pedestrian sort of scholar. He published nothing at all, but ploughed his way on regardless. And on the whole, in the interwar years, the subject had become rather a lost cause. There was also Professor Hazeltine at Downing, who was supposed to be uh, also in the advancement of legal history as a subject, but who didn't really do very much about it. So that by the time you get we get to the, the post-war years, on the whole, the subject was very much in the, you might say, the doghouse, as a, comparatively speaking. And therefore, the immediate post-war generation had quite a lot of because we were catching up to do, rejuvenating the, the lecturing, really. The lecturing had got very matter-of-fact and uh, uninspiring. Uh, Mr Yale, do you remember any of the weekenders and whether they were effective in your view? Uh, yes, well, I used to employ them when I was Director of Studies in Christ. Uh, because they were very valuable, they would come up on a Friday night and give their supervisions on Saturdays and disappear for the rest of the weekend. But they were very, very useful for plugging gaps. If you were director of studies, you had to provide supervisors in all the tripod subjects. And that was very difficult to do with the existing staff who had their own priorities and preferences and so forth. So on the whole, we did rely on them to a considerable extent and they were very valuable because they were in touch with the practicalities of the profession. And also, they were very popular with the undergraduates who felt they were in contact with real lawyers who had their hands on the levers as they themselves hoped in the immediate future. So they were all, I think, quite well received as entirely amateur supervisors, but they were not professional academics at all. But we relied on them quite considerably in the early days.
do you recall any of your supervisors? Any? Any of your supervisors? Can you recall who Yes, oh, I can remember the ones in the faculty, in the faculty who worked for me. I took up different subjects, yes. I remember one or two had careers, one or two ended up, well, I can remember one who became a cabinet minister at the end. Mr. Yale, which faculty lecturers impressed you the most? Well, the ones on modern law on the whole, I think, and uh, uh, I, I, I didn't take particularly to some subjects, but others were favourites. And uh, it's very strange how one comes to be immersed in one particular field. Become, there's a danger, of course, in becoming an over-specialist. The best sort of academic work is very often done in the field of comparative law, where one's juggling with more than two systems at the same time. Like Kurt, for example, he was in comparative law. And he was, first of all, of Trinity College under Lauterpacht, who felt, I think, that as refugees from Germany, they should not be seen to be promoting each other and held down Kurt very much in Trinity. I don't know if you've ever heard this sort of comment before. And it was only after an inordinate period of time that he was rescued by Claire and taken in there as a fellow. He was very badly dealt with by Trinity College. It's almost a scandal. He spent years working for them without any advancement at all. What was remarkable was how he maintained a very stoical and cheerful disposition. Yes. Despite this. He was indeed. Yes. A very easy person to get on with. Yes. Um, your time as an undergraduate coincided with the brief tenure of Toby Milsom, who was an assistant lecturer from 1949 to 55. Did he teach you at this time? And did he have any influence on you, Mr. Yale? Well, I followed him quite closely. When, when I started doing work on my own account, research work, he was quite generous of his time because I wasn't a research student. I simply decided I would do my initial work and put in for things like a York Prize, which I got, University Prize. But Milsom at that time was a junior fellow at Trinity, and he allowed me to read to him some passages of what I was writing to get his comments on them. That was valuable to me because he was able to make suggestions and he criticisms. At that stage of my career I depended on him a fair amount. Later on, not so much. 
the faculty at this point was housed in the old schools. Yes. Um, was this quite cramped for lectures and so on? Oh, it was quite cramped, yes, it was certainly. And it was also a battlefield between ourselves, the law faculty, and the administrative people in the in the above old King's Court um, part of the building. They were constantly taking it. They took away room three, for example, which was one of the best lecture rooms in the in the university. And it was handed over the old school of canon law. And that room was handed over to the computer wallers. You see. In the, I remember that uh, raid quite well with the, with the registry at the argument that they'd been so used in the administrative quarters to taking the forms and papers off the shelf that they couldn't have a computer which was parked a mile away. It wouldn't work because they were always been used to have been arms reach of what they wanted. Therefore the computer had to be in the office. Was room three the room which had marvellous acoustics? It was very good, yes. Yeah. It was a, a very good room for lecturing. Yeah. Okay. Um, do, do you have memories at that time of the Squire Law Library? Yes, I, rem I remember the Squire Law Library and the people who worked on it. In fact, John Baker was an assistant librarian there. His first job when he came up from London was to work as a librarian in that office. Then, of course, he took off and got a university appointment. But that was his first move into Cambridge. Right. I think he felt very much in tune with the Cockrell building being very beautiful. Um, it was a fine library. Still is a library, of course, if, if you um, want to see it. I suppose you can walk in and it's part of Keys now. Yes. Handed over to Keys on a 400-year lease. <laughs> Rather ambitious. Yes. Span of time <laughs> to look ahead. Yes. <laughs> now, some of the uh, there were some quite colourful people on the staff at this time, um, and the name of Henry Barnes springs to mind. Barnes, yes, Henry Barnes. Well, I was a favourite of Henry Barnes for some strange reason. He had a very extraordinary career which made him very popular with the undergraduates. He'd been as a young man in Mexico in the Caribbean and had joined uh, a pack of revolutionaries in Mexico at one stage. This was just before the First World War and he had the, the myth surrounding him was considerable but it was said that he'd for 48 hours, been vice president of Mexico. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but he had a sort of gun runner youth, 
and had survived that miraculously, and washed up at Trinity College where he insisted on becoming a member of Trinity and qualifying himself as a sort of rough and ready lawyer. But his experiences made him very popular with the undergraduates because he lectured on some of the most rapid parts of criminal law with great gusto. And he had this extraordinary history of guerrilla warfare behind him. And he was a person of really rather generous disposition. I remember once I had a, a long chat with him in his rooms overlooking Sydney. And at the end of the discussion, he left up and took down four volumes of Blackstone's commentaries, which he handed over to me. And it was a very precious set. It had a, a, a distinguished uh, Cambridge ownership of th those books. And he just pressed them onto me and told me to take away and look after, you see. But he was a very impulsive sort of man. The undergraduates used to tell the most extraordinary stories about him, going up and sitting in his rooms waiting for him to appear to supervise them. He would come up the stairs and go to the windows overlooking Sydney Street and twitch the curtains across and then he'd turn around and say, you would never know who'll be shooting through the windows at dusk. <laughs> <laughs> and he managed to engage the undergraduates most successfully by his reminiscences, I suppose, of his raffish days. <laughs> he was a Cabral character. He wouldn't have been, now I doubt whether he'd be appointed, you know, to university lecturership, but he held one for a number of years, was very popular, was a strict teetotaler, as he had reason to be. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, another rather colourful character was Clive Perry. Clive, yes. I, 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 I thought well of Clive. He, was a, he did a lot for international law in one way or another. I was a great editor of, of the original archives in the Foreign Office and the rest. And he, he had experience of other parts of the world. He'd done a stint in, in Australia at one stage in his career. As I nearly did, as a matter of fact, I remember one departmental head from Adelaide trying to induce me to go to South Australia to make a living, which he didn't succeed in bringing off. But Clive was, uh, how should I say, not a very easy person to get to know, actually, but he always uh, commanded respect. He was a very talented man. 
sadly died relatively young. Oh yes, yes. He died like people do sometimes, I think. When he retired, he died, I don't know, not voluntarily of course, but he, he was no, perhaps no coincidence. Did uh, David Daub have any sort of... Daub, I, no, I didn't know him very well at all, but he was at Tees College and he was really the one successor in Roman law after Buckland who was entitled to respect in the academic scale of things. He was a very gifted man. He went on to be a Regis professor in Oxford. He was eventually in all souls. And he lectured in Roman law. That was, well, not his only subject. He was a great Jewish scholar as well. But he was Well, he was the one Roman lawyer who was worthy of, I think, as a successor to Buckland. Mm. Buckland was the great name, Cambridge name, in the subject. And I used to lecture a lot on Roman law, teach it, the supervision was too, wow. because of its elementary character in introducing people to basic legal concepts. It's very valuable in that respect. Much more so than English law, you get a sense of pattern and of shape in Roman law, which you don't get in the heterogeneous collection which goes for English law and common law. The concepts are much sharper and I think more easily grasped. So I, although it was never a very popular subject with undergraduates, I think educationally it was one of the more rewarding ones. I'm glad that it's still taught at Cambridge. Yes, it is. Yes. Well, it, it, in my in my time, it fairly well flourished, I think. But we even had a lecturer in Roman Dutch law, you know, modern Dutch, modern Roman law. That might have been Colin Turpin? I forget, it may well have been, yes, he may, from South Africa. Colin was from Durban, wasn't he? That's right, yes, yes. Did you ever meet him and interview him? Sadly, uh, we had arranged a meeting mm. and... Because uh, I remember him as a, as a student from South Africa. Right. Yeah. When he came uh, to Cambridge initially, mm. that would have been actually in the 60s. Yes. Um, sadly, it wasn't to be because um, he actually died in August. Which, which this year. Was this year, year last August? Yes. Really? Yes, very sadly. Um, well, I hadn't been in touch with him for a long time. No. But he was at Christ, wasn't he? I seem to remember him. 
quite vividly. He was at Clare. Clare? Clare. Oh, yes. yes. Now, how did I come across him then? Um, he may have been at Christ's initially. It escapes me now, but you, you, could, be, you could be right. Um, but, uh, perhaps, he, perhaps he moved between the two colleges as a research student. I think it may have been there. Yes, but by all accounts, he was a very, a very amiable, convivial person. Yes. 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 And of course, he did produce that seminal constitutional yes. law. Well, I've with, uh, with all these people, I'm so much out of touch now. After twenty, more than twenty years' absence. Yes. Well, your memory is remarkable, though, Mr. Yale, absolutely remarkable. Well... Um, still on the subject of people during this early time when you were at Christ's, um, there were some professors. Um, there was McNair, who was Professor of Comparative Law. Do you have any recollections of him? The name is here. You mean on your list? Yes. Uh, comparative law, McNair, no, I didn't know McNair at all. He was a fellow of Keyes, wasn't he? Had a great name there. He and Buckland wrote a very good joint book on comparing Roman law and common law, which um, I, I value very much. But I don't know, the uh, Duff was Regis in, in Roman law. Yes. And a, a, quite dependable but not particularly outstanding in, in uh, literary side, side of things. And Wade, had, Wade was not uh, the man who, who was Bill Wade, who was the master of keys. This was another ECS Wade, who was a public lawyer, public law uh, lawyer, constitutional law, I should say. Who I knew slightly, but not at all well. The other outstanding. Harold Potter, I've underlined here. You mentioned him. He wasn't Cambridge at all, but he was a, a in and about quite a lot. He used to come to Cambridge at weekends and deliver a lecture on Saturday or Friday night and buzz off again. Right. But he was all, always in the square at a weekend. I see. He came to Cambridge from London and disappeared back to London where he was professor. He wasn't on the faculty at all. But he was he was very useful to the Cambridge faculty. He wrote quite a good little well, large textbook on the subject legal history and he was quite um, willing to extend a helping hand because I do recall very vividly how when I'd finished being an examinee I was trying to collect a, a subject or a field which I could develop in a research direction. And I tried a number of subjects I needn't bore you with, but 
none of them were, were really very satisfying. And I was a pound potter in the Squire Library one Saturday afternoon, and I said, I'm having a difficult time thrashing around, taking up things and dropping them again. Have you any ideas? He said, oh, you better, you better uh, do something on early equity. So I asked him what he'd do about the openings there or the vacancies of, of interest which could be, as it were, supplied by some latter-day research. And he then told me that Nottingham was a good bet. And he suggested I run Nottingham as a trial, so I did. And that was the original inspiration? It, it was a, It was just a, a ten-minute conversation. Which Incredible. I hadn't thought of him at all. Yes. Well, we, I greatly look forward to returning to that uh, when we talk about um, your publications. Um, you, uh, before we leave this time, uh, I, was I was told by Professor Baker that you were quite a sportsman or an athlete and as an undergraduate. I was a what? And qu quite an athlete. Athlete, oh, yes. As an undergraduate. And uh, I well. wondered whether you could uh, tell us of some of your triumphs. Well, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration on John's part, but I set out to be a, an oarsman, but I, I was never in the range of proficiency or build where you can uh, expect to have trials for, uh, you know, the blue boat or anything of that nature. But I was an enthusiastic college performer, and each of the May boats I um, rode in for all three years, each of them got their oars for successive bumps, uh, three or four successive bumps in the bumping races, you know, on the cam. So I had an, an extraordinary run of luck in, in that regard. And, uh, but I, that doesn't really suggest I was more than a good college uh, member of a boat club. I wasn't a, I wasn't an all-round athlete. But I, I, I was, I great believer in, in a bit of active exercise to keep one's head in good order. Indeed. You know, yes. people would sometimes, as I myself did, overwork occasionally, and the discipline of getting out of doors is rather important. Yes. Well, that brings us, Mr. Yale, to your graduation. You graduated in 1949 when you were 21. Yes. And then you did your LLB. LLB, yes, that's right. Becoming... Um, uh, did you have specific in your specific interest in law by this stage was perhaps legal history? It was indeed. And you became a fellow 
of Christ in 1950. Um, yes. This would have been about the time that you first met Michael Pritchard. Well, Michael was one hop ahead of me by the one year. He was a London, well, as you know, I didn't tell you about him, but uh, you know all about his career. He came up from London to do the LLB and joined at that stage. He was one of uh, Potter's prize pupils at one right. time. Right. So uh, you joined the Inner Temple in 1959. Any circumstances that you recall from that? Which was that? The, when you joined the Inner Temple in 1951. Not really, no. Uh, I, uh, I can't say that I had any special reason for choosing the Inner Temple and elsewhere. But um, um, you did your bar exams that year? Yes, I did the bar exams after the LLB. Did you intend practicing? Did you have any I intention? went into chambers for six months uh, in uh, 13 old squares in Inn. The conveyances chambers really, a man called Hector Hillaby. And <coughs> I, I was his pupil uh, for six months commuting from Cambridge and uh, doing some research at the same time in a preliminary way in the British Museum Library, British Library as it now is. So I did that for six months, travelling up on a more or less a daily basis to London and I, 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 I never, as it were, did any work on my own account. It was always sitting in for someone else or acting as a sort of bell's weather for my pupil master, who was a conveyancer mainly. We didn't ever appear in anything of a spectacular interest to the wide world, as you get with certain types of case. We were all, always dealing with trusts and property and transactions of that nature. Um, Mr. Yale, you mentioned the influence of Professor Potter and um, this more or less inspired you to become a legal historian. Do you have any personal recollections of him as Potter. a person? Yes. No, very little. Only what I knew him from his weekend visits and coincidences in the square of, on a Saturday. Right. He he never uh, he never, as it were, corresponded with me. All I knew, all I remember of him is word of mouth conversation. Yes. Now, at this time, this was the early 50s, there were no women at Christ's. I, as I understand, this only took place in 1979. 
there were no during this time. This was the early fifties yes. at Christ. There were there were no women. No, no. This only happened, I think, in 1979. That's right. Do, do you know why, why it took a fair bit of time? Well, all the colleges went uh, in that decade, really. I, I, I don't think there was any movement until the early 70s. And they, they'd all merged by the time you get to the uh, 80s. So it was that decade, really. But all the colleges went within about six or seven years of each other. To some extent, the process was staggered to, as it were, um, make the change more digestible. So it was done in stages. Admittedly, different colleges took a bit longer by agreement, so they should, as it were, acclimatise more easily to the change. But it was accomplished without one or two objectors, I suppose, in each college, but on the whole it was a minority interest in preserving the status quo at that time. And I think now things have settled down in a way which is really satisfactory to all. Yes. In 1952, you became an assistant lecturer and then a lecturer, and you held these positions for 17 years. Uh, can you describe the circumstances of, of your appointment to an assistant lectureship? Did, I mean, did you have to apply, or was it a conversation? You had to apply, yes. Uh, you were sometimes advised to apply or suggested you should apply, but you had to apply. You couldn't be, as it were, find yourself elected ex post facto. I was willing to do that because I, I was going to, at that stage, I decided I was probably going to stay in the university rather than go, go seeking my fortune at the bar, which is uh, something I might have done, but in the event I didn't. Of course, it, it, at that time we were in need of some financial security too, because although it's not, I suppose it's relevant to mention that We'd become rather impoverished as a family. Uh, my mother's was an, uh, my, was an army widow after my father's death. And that was only a pittance. There was no spare money whatsoever. And there was a big overdraft at the bank and uh, a mortgage uh, on the house and all the rest of it. And we needed to, uh, you know, resolve these unfortunate circumstances, which we did. When I attained, attained the age of 21 or 22, I set about that by various manoeuvres, which I needn't recall now. 
we got on an even keel again and pumped the boat out financially. But a job in the hand was worth any amount of years waiting at a bar before you could get to practice. And I wasn't of a sufficiently dashing disposition to undertake that risk. So I was playing it safe, brother. That's why I stayed in Cambridge. Yes. They seemed willing to let me stay, so I stayed. Any particular duties during that time that you recall, teaching duties? Well, I had to, I was appointed to a research fellowship in the college before I got the, any advancement on the lecturing front. And although it was supposed to be a research fellowship, for three years, the usual sort of thing. It wasn't really, because the next day they made me director of studies, which was a job in itself. And then they, um, of course, expected me to undertake uh, quite a, a lot of teaching, which uh, again wasn't really in the job description at all. As a research fellow, you're supposed not to teach but to research. But uh, it didn't work out that way with, with me. I wasn't on, on the, uh, my terms but their terms. So a very full life, a very full academic life. Yes, well it was, um, that, that's what happened to, to me certainly. Did you teach legal history? No, not much. Only in the LLB. Later on, the LLB got much more interesting because the people there would be already well in advance of the undergraduate performances. They'd be able to. Some of your fellow lecturers at this point included uh, Mr. Mickey Dias who was appointed in 1959, 1951. Mm. Any recollections of him? In fact, I think he might have been talking about Dutch Well, he was uh, uh, from Ceylon, uh, uh, as his name suggests. And he was, uh, he taught jurisprudence, theoretical aspects of law. In Trinity Hall, in a basement uh, down in Trinity Hall, and he slogged away at that. And then he went off to be a, a lecturer at Aberystwyth. Then you returned to Cambridge. He got an appointment for a lectureship in jurisprudence. And he he made his way, uh, in one way or another. He he was a he he was a member of the Inner Temple. Became a bencher and all the rest of it. He was uh, he, he was competent, but he was an analytical jurisprudence, and that is very much a, a, an acquired taste, I think. I remember he communicated fairly well, though. He was he was a valuable member. Michael Pritchard I knew rather better. But not at that stage, 
only later did I become really close to Pritchard and his work. Keith Wedderburn, I didn't know at all well, though he was a member of Queen's when I was, and he was um, eventually in London uh, as a professor. And Toby Milton, who's another, he he's, was certainly influential on my career. I, 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 I mentioned Toby helping me in my earlier time. Of course, he spent much of his career outside Cambridge. After Trinity, he was in um, London for quite a, a while because they made him professor of legal history after Plucknett's retirement or demise. And then he went off to Oxford at New College. He spent a bit of time at New College in Oxford. And then he returned in the 70, 76 or so thereabouts to Cambridge, where he got a professorship, which was then vacant. I forget which it was. Right. He got that appointment. And he was always, therefore, one who jumps ahead of me, and he, he jumped me from place to place. And on the whole, I think, sometimes he found me too close on his heels for comfort. Though I didn't jump about from place to place, I stuck in a rut. By the time I left Cambridge, which was two years before I was due to retire, I had become the most senior, unadvanced reader in the university, not just in the law faculty, but in the whole university. With a very impressive publication record. Yes, well, um, that's one thing. Uh, Incidentally, uh, yes, the whole, th the whole balance of this is an interesting reflection, isn't it? That they used to say in Cambridge, I don't know whether you've heard this, that there are four areas, three areas perhaps, in which one can uh, put in a, 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 an effort. Well, one is, of course, teaching and instruction and so on. And the second is uh, the field of research and learning. And the third is administrative duties and committees and carry on of that sort. But you should never attempt more than two in any one person. Otherwise, you run the risk of being submerged and not being able to cope at all. And I, I confess, I've, I, I've tried all three, and some of them have, I've tried simultaneously, and I think I've over, overdone it badly. But as you'll see in the course of discussion, because after a while I 
was very much drawn into the administrative side of the university and I spent much too much time on that, which is a confession I'm willing to make, but I think it has, it has had a considerable effect upon the amount of work I was able to do in the field of teaching research. Very interesting. We might come to that later, perhaps. Yes. Um, were there any particular circumstances when you were upgraded from an assistant lecturer to a lecturer? I don't think so, no. Yeah. Except that uh, that's what commonly happens, uh, I think, on the whole, uh, unless there's some accident of a serious nature. Uh, you normally, if you had survived the probationary tenure of the assistant lecturer, you could expect to be prolonged, unless you wished otherwise. Right. If you were good enough to, as it were, maintain your the task at the lower level, there had to be. A, some reason why you should not, you know, be prolonged. Yes. But people did have to go elsewhere from time to time, of course, yeah. simply because they needed the promotion earlier than they were going to get it by waiting. Right. Sometimes one had to wait quite a while and you know, be in a system for more than three years. That might be the tenure, but you found yourself perhaps being that for six years or the pressure. If you have a set establishment for the faculty or the department, you have only a, a limited number of slots which you can fill. Yeah. And therefore it means that you have to juggle a bit with people, unfortunately. Yes. And sometimes people get advanced quite rapidly under certain circumstances and under other circumstances they get uh, held down yes. for an uncomfortable time. Yes. Well, um, this brings us to your earliest publications. Yes. Uh, not the content at this point, Mr. Yale, but if we could just talk a little bit about the circumstances. This was, again, the early 50s, uh, two years after your appointment as a lecturer, when your Seldom Society volume on Lord Nottingham Chancery Cases, Volume 1, was ready for publication. It was a major work of about 580 pages, and in the preface, you intimated that Volume 2 was at least well underway. So two volumes amounting to well over a thousand pages, which suggests that you'd put in a huge amount of scholarly research. Um, this wasn't just a casual entry. And perhaps you commenced this research uh, before you even became an assistant lecturer. So yes. at what point um, did this active research on legal history... The dates seem a bit curious, don't they? 
uh, that it didn't appear, volume two. for some time. The reason for that was simply that Earl Pluckner, who was editor of the uh, literary director, I should say, of the Southern Society, uh, was under pressure to postpone my second volume because he needed to insert uh, uh, earlier a contribution by Sir John, Sir Cecil Carr it was, Sir Cecil Carr, who's um, a very eminent scholar who, who was a parliamentary counsel to, the, I think, the Speaker of the House of Commons and all the rest of it. And he produced an edition of the pension book of Clement's Inn. Uh, which is now in the Selden Society, but it was ready and he, he wished to promote um, Cecil Carr's volume uh, to uh, as soon as possible on account of age and retirement and so forth. And he, he asked, can you postpone volume two? So I said, I've done the work on it, but I'm quite ready to wait couple of years and you can have it when you can take it right that's all that was all that yeah. happened there yeah. it was a sort of a, a juggling act yes which the literary directors of the Selden have to do yes uh, who on uh, one year after another who's first who's second and so on yes um so the motivation for the Nottingham project implies that within two years of getting your LLB in 1950, you had set your mind on testing whether Lord Nottingham could be considered the father of modern equity, and you concluded that he was. So this quest at such an early stage in your career suggests a remarkable sense of confidence and maturity because you couldn't have been more than 22 or 23 years. How did you manage to buoy yourself up for such an ambitious project? Well, it's been suggested to me. I thought there might be something in it. I proceeded to find out as much as I could. And as uh, um, it was um, possible, I laid my hand on the on the, what turned out to be a reliable copy uh, of, of the reports, over a thousand cases. Uh, but in those days, it took time to not read it in the British Museum. But the, the, then, in those days, it was really taking photographs, getting a microfilm. Then you had copying facilities, you had the Xerox, of course, which was in a copy. You didn't have the modern facilities you have for reproducing facsimile texts, that sort of thing. So what I did was I sat down in front of a, a, a microfilm reader and transcribed by hand. And having done that, I typed by hand 
And having done that, I then read the thing all over again for verification purposes and turned it into modern English, which, uh, of course, raised some eyebrows. It should be, should have preserved the old spellings and some people would have felt that in the cells of society you have to reproduce what was, if it's a French, you know, an English translation, but the French, the actual wording is important. So, so I, I, I did all that and I don't regret it because I've spent hours at it, but I, the, the very fact of having to copy the thing and to rewrite it and to publish it in its final form was a, a way of learning the subject. It was, a lot of it was fairly new to me, a lot of it is highly technical. But it was manageable, partly because I was pushed to, as it were, writing out it sentence by sentence, then copying and copying, verifying and verifying. It's sucking one's head after a while. Yes, fascinating. Hello. Oh yes, good night. Thank you very much. In the same period, the mid-50s, that you were working on your Nottingham project, there were some early journal publications published, and the earliest one that I could find in 1955 was on tort and the subject of maintenance, uh, which was an illegal help in lawsuits. And you looked at the historic use of this and how the common law has developed, and as you put it, to quote... I quote you, Mr. Yale, adapting of old rules to new circumstances and in the subsequent creation of new law. So how did this interest develop, or was it after or simultaneously with the Lord Nottingham work? Did you see anything there? Not Thank you. Okay. <coughs> I'm sorry. Can't I repeat the last sorry. question? Uh, <coughs> You, you, uh, this idea of adapting of old rules to new circumstances yeah. in the consequent creation of new law, how did this interest develop? Was it after or simultaneously with your Lord Nottingham work? Oh, I think I felt all that a, a, a long time ago, that uh, the process of adaption. And it's really a, a, a point of principle that... Uh, how come uh, the what what is the process of adaption or adoption creation of new law? I, I don't think you can study the subject of legal history without feeling that a, the common law on one hand is a process of continuous change and adaption, and it's. Uh, uh, 
under pressure of all sorts of impersonal factors, politics and economic and social factors, which eventually are reflected in the beliefs of the profession and the profession churn out the doctrine and which then governs the law for the time being until it's revised and reversed. So it's a process of great change, but this is the area in which I rather departed from Milsom. Milsom was inclined to the view that the early common law, which was all that he was interested in, he wasn't interested at all in the 17th century and later, but the early common law was a, well, clearly an inductive, not a deductive way of going about things. But the early common law was a process of gradual accretion, little bit by little bit, rather like you like the analogy of building up a coral reef, that sort of thing. But he was, and he was very dismissive of the view that great figures produce revolutionary changes at any one time. He thought that was a, quite the wrong way to go about things. And of course, that, oh. Just take it. Thank you very much indeed. Very thanks. Should we just No, thank you. I shall. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that difference of opinion, rather coloured relationships in a way. Uh, that uh, his interpretation of the process was not quite my interpretation of the process. Yeah. And to the extent that something of a fairly fundamental nature was a, in, in, in approach to the subject, of course, made for certain awkwardnesses in later times. So uh, we always remained on very good terms personally, but on grounds of how to cope with the material, there was a difference, I think, of a very fundamental nature that I was quite prepared to allow for much greater personal influence of certain individuals at certain critical points than Toby was ever prepared to admit or believe in. However, that's all a bit of rather refined justification. Very interesting indeed. That is fascinating. Um, Mr. Yale, would you like to take a, a break? Not particularly. I, well, would you like five minutes or not? I'm, I'm very happy to 
Let's press Continue. on then. Yes, thank you. Um, <clears throat> this brings us back to the narrative of your lectureship years. Yes. You married in 1959. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Elizabeth Ann Brett from Belfast. Yes. Well, there we are, 59. I lived in college all the time. Well, we lived in flats till we moved out to Fullbourne uh, when we returned from America. We went to America in uh, the early 60s on a sabbatical trip. And uh, I had uh, met um, the dean of the Laws of the law school at New Haven, uh, who was in Cambridge the year before, and he got an appointment for me as a visiting professor in New Haven. So we went there in the early 60s, just for one year, spent a year in America. And uh, then um, The only other sabbatical I took in my time was in the early 80s when I took a year off. And uh, on that occasion, I spent the year doing research on some of these later efforts. And uh, we only went to a short holiday on the, in the 80s. We went off for some weeks or a month or two to the south of France. Those are the two occasions when I took leave. And on the whole, the first of them was doing a full stint, really, at the law school in New Haven. And the second was mostly pursuing research for the later works, which you refer to here. We'd started Admiralty by then, yes. and we'd continue with the Admiralty for year after year after year, uh, with considerable lapses of doing anything in between. We went at, at, at hammer and tongs all the time, until the, the very end, when we realised that time was running out on both of us until you know, retirement age arrived, we hadn't got so much time left. When I put a, <coughs> I put it to Michael, either we'd we give up or we do what we can, and we decided to, instead of producing what one would call a narrative history of the institution from A to Z, which is, I think, what we'd originally supposed to be doing, we decided to reduce it to a much more shorter time span. That's to say the period between, shall we say, uh, the, the, uh, the Middle Ages and modern times uh, on the jurisdictional question of who was to run the commercial law of the country, was it the civilians in the Court of Admiralty, or was it the common lawyers in the Court of Common Law? And 
that what we eventually published on the Admiralty Front was an examination of that latter question. It wasn't a history of the court as institution made us that at all. But we did it because we had made this big collection which you've kindly dug up uh, and we were uh, unable to really find time to do what was originally intended which was an A to Z account of Ecuador. Very interesting. Um, that brings us to your readership which was from 1969 to 1993, yeah. 24 years in total. Can you recall the circumstances of this promotion? No, it was a fairly uh, early promotion. But um, that's all I can say about it. It lasted a long time, as you can see. Yeah, there are one or two things I'd add to that list, actually. Uh, you, you might also pencil in that I was editor of the Cambridge Law Journal for a span of years, 1940, 1974 to 1981. That's just about six or seven years, isn't it? Right. Thank you. Rather unintendedly, because um, what happened was um, Hampson, Jack Hampson, had been editor for a long time and then he had been persuaded he'd done enough, I suppose, and he retired. And they pitched on a chap called Stanley de Smith, who had held a chair in London and had recently been appointed to a chair of public law in Cambridge and who was um, obviously a very suitable choice to have made for the job. But he'd only been in Cambridge for a matter of six months before he was fatally uh, ill and was no longer with us at all. So they cast around in a panic really halfway through the year and they pitched on me and I had nothing I had no connection with editorial work on the journal before at all. But they pitched on me and said, you must pull us out in this emergency. And I pulled, I pulled my fingers out for them for the next half dozen years on the CLJ. Gosh, which must have been hugely time consuming. It was very time consuming. Yes. And it's not the only thing you see, because I had the uh, monograph series, which you do mention here. Yes. And we, which was a very valuable um, uh, instrument for the subject, because a lot of people uh, who are looking for initial appointments would like a dissertation or something of that sort in book form and they should uh, 
get on more readily if they have you know, a publication to their names, if it's sufficiently good, why not publish it? And that's the, really the function of this series, to get people going. Is this the Cambridge Studies in English Legal that's History? That's it, yes. yes. Uh, the yeah. Cambridge Studies in English Legal History. Right. Um, and <laughs> the only thing I remember about that now is that uh, it, during that period, the press had a rather remarkable scare financially. They were, they thought they were insolvent or something horrible was going to happen. And they were looking around for economies. They decided to axe the series. I had a very stiff time with them, including writing letters to press before the syndicate. Eventually, clouds lifted and they decided they could continue on reduced terms. At any rate, they were not going to go in for suppression and <laughs> disposal. Which, so that was... Uh, which was, uh, to some extent, that thanks was, to uh, your intervention. That was a, a victory of a kind, yes. yes. Uh, you were chairman of the faculty for, from 76 to I was chairman of the faculty also, yes. Any highlights from that time? Yes. Huh? Any highlights that you remember? Not really, no. I think it was a rather uneventful span of service there. But it was um, one of the jobs I did with also spin-off from being on one of the central bodies. I was once on the Council of the Senate, but I've spent most of my time in the old schools on general board duties, you know, the general board of the faculties. Oh, yes. And that meant that sometimes when there were specialised tasks which were spun off, as it were, and I found myself chairman of the Standing Committee on academic uh, work uh, 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 work and stipend matters for university staff of, of, of the academic rating. That was a, quite an endless job because it was involved with looking after the rights and duties of all the people working academically right, you know, professor, right down through departmental heads and all the rest of it, right down to the lower ranks, and seeing that they got what they ought to get and they had to deliver what they ought to deliver. Right. And um, that took about one meeting a week. Of course, there was support from the university administrative staff but even so, it took up a lot, lot of time. Yes. And it's what I was referring to earlier when we were talking about the division of time available to one, apart from teaching and research, there was this additional burden which occupied a good deal and probably about too much right. one's time. Right. 
That's it's, it's, it's the freedom that a university possesses to conduct its own affairs, which is at stake. Yes. Uh, I think worth the, worth the effort to keep. Yes. Even at this stage, do you recall any discussions of the faculty about being given its own home? Being given? About, giving, about being given its own premises. Was there any discussion at this point about moving to um, its own accommodation rather than the old schools? I wasn't involved much in that, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad it happened because things were getting very compressed and constricted in the old sites on the old schools. And of course there was the horrid precedent of the historians having the Sterling building uh, which is still, I suppose, is still in being. It's not, has been pulled down next door. It's still there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I do remember discussions about whether it was cheaper to prepare that building or to put it down. Gosh. It's still there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's had a, a major refurbishment in the last months. Yes. Really? Mm. Yes. Um, you gave the Hale as a Legal Historian Selden Society Lecture in the Old Hall of Lincoln's Inn in 1976, July, um, where you must then, by that stage, have decided to bring Hale into sharp focus. Can you say something of this occasion? On Hale's, um, um, Hale's writing? Your lecture, Hale as a legal oh, historian. Uh, that was really quite a short lecture on Hale as a legal historian, which I gave uh, really as a sideshow or uh, as an episode in the exhibition we held in Lincoln's Inn of Hale's writings. A large proportion of which are in in the custody of, of Lincoln's Inn, so it was quite convenient to be able to set it out in the old hall of Lincoln's Inn as a standing exhibition for uh, about three or four days. Right. And the lecture was just one episode in that right. little effort. Uh -huh. It wasn't a very important lecture. It was it was only about um, the text of um, three or four hundred words almost. Right. And throughout this time, your research time as a reader, you were still working on the large volume of material that you were amassing with Michael Pritchard yes. for the Admiralty Court project. Yes. And this would also have taken up your time as well. In the meantime, you published a separate volume on Hale's work, dealing with the prerogatives of the king. Yes. And this was another huge piece of editorial. It's a, it's a bulky work there. Yes. It's a comp composite volume, actually. 
because he wrote that um, as a um, as a, 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 a installments, as it were. So I had to. It was a rather a stitch stitch up job that I did on the text. But it's um. It's only the opening chapters of a really a very vast work which he prefigured. I I was able to track down the outline of the whole discourse, and he only achieved a, a, a very partial opening in a, in those thousand pages or whatever it was. He'd written a he was aiming to write a oh, a, a very long work indeed. Right. On public law, generally. Right. So it was during this period um, that you were the literary director of the Selwyn Society. From seventy six to eighty, you shared. Yes, this. I was. I was associated with Milson as an assistant, but that is was rather titular in the sense that. He did all the work, and we were simply available to him for consultation, if and when wanted. Well, I was an assistant, that was the arrangement. But then we, uh, later, when he retired, I, be I became, for a very short time, I think so, uh, editor or literary director. and. I then decided really it was a two-person job and associated John Baker with me. And then, of course, when I dropped off, he took the first post with this Felden as literary director and had an associate with him to do some of the work and Selden uh, um, originally had a secretary who did a certain amount of the literary work, but in modern times it's become the job of the literary director to all stages of production of work has become the business of the literary director. Thank you. There's been a shift in the who does what scene of things. The current uh, literary director is Neil Jones. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yes. And he needs help. I think, I don't know whether they've appointed anyone, but I've got the impression he's been under pressure, too much pressure as a sole incumbent. So, uh, you also seemed to have played an important role in the general running of the society, and uh, I recall Tony Milson telling me about the centenary celebrations in 1987. Oh, yes. Um, do you recall this this event? Yes, I think I do recall it, not all that well, but 
Uh, it was, uh, I think, 600 years since uh, the laws of Oleron were published. Uh, and uh, where we got, got it here somewhere. Excuse me, turning over details here. Oh yes, yes, the question was asked. Well, the, 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 on that uh, centenary occasionally, uh, we had a dinner, as far as I remember, and uh, the Duke of Edinburgh was present as patron of the whole society. And uh, this is by that stage, you had already been elected to the British Academy in nineteen eighty. Yes. yes. Do you, can you recall the circumstances of this honour? Not really. I can. Um, I, I was elected. I think. Not at a particularly young age. By 1980, I was uh, what I, I should have been in my 40s, late 40s. But perhaps you would uh, say that that's no, nothing remarkable in that. And you, I was reminded by uh, Professor Baker that you had a major university role by chairing the committee that drew up the new university oh, statutes. Oh, yes. Well, that was, was another effect of being on the central bodies. Yes. One got roped in for those sort of jobs. The first one I had was the result of Lord Devlin's report on discipline in the university. There were ructions and rows, you know, in the 60s. The law school itself was under um, occupation, so-called, uh, for one whole almost one whole term in the late term of, of when the troubles were at the height. And Devlin was called in He'd retired, I think, just then from the House of Lords. And he was, Patrick Devlin came in and held, a, held an inquiry and published a report. And then I was involved in the job of translating the report into the new university ordinances which dealt with these matters. So I had a that initial job, and then I got the same results when I was made a member of the WAS Committee on the Constitution of the University. Now, we felt it was time to make an internal effort to produce some reform. 
because there were all sorts of difficulties piling up. In the case of Oxford and Cambridge, much of the reforms in the last hundred years or so have come about by outside intervention, Parliament getting its hand into, into, into the machinery and tweaking it about. But we decided we'd have our own go and we got this highly paid and regarded civil servant to come in and guide the deliberations. I was on that committee in a, uh, as a delegate, of course. But afterwards, I, I had the job of trying to translate all this into university ordinances. And many a long hour I spent with John Eastling of Trinity, who was, has the job of being the university draftsman. He did a, a great deal of the work, but I had to be there to, uh, at all times on that endeavour. And I think we did fairly well. Of course, the, the press and the, the public uh, thought of it entirely in terms of changing the vice-chancellorship from a rotating office into a permanent and established single head of house of the university. That was all that we were deemed to have done to revolutionise number one at the top of the working of the university. But we did much more than that. And we'd, it's not the more important part either. We, we were really thinking along devolutionary lines. And I think we were partly acceptable because the old system depended upon university bodies having powers to recommend, but not to ratify, but not to do things. All they could do was to recommend to the highest bodies what should be done. And very often there were delays and mistakes and lacunae in the whole business, which really was no longer defensible. Things got shelved and not put through, which had been discussed and thoroughly voted upon at a lower level. So what we were wish, wishful of achieving was to drive down the autonomy of these bodies and give it lower down subject to a general supervision of the higher, higher bodies and to take down the level of decision-making down from the General Board of Actors to a faculty board who report, of course, brought up, but they actually do things at a lower and more appropriate level. And when we'd done all that, we felt that we had achieved much of what Watts wanted us to do. We'd had a, a modest amount of devolution and the machinery was again speeding up uh, from a, being a really a very unsatisfactory instrument of delay and indecision. And this system that you put into place and helped put into place is in existence today? 
Yes, basically. I don't know. You see, I, I'm no longer in the midst of all this, so whether anything has been happening in, uh, in fact, but not in the, the newspapers, uh, I, I would be ignorant of now, actually, quite ignorant. That's very interesting. Um, well, that takes us then to your retirement from 1993. Yes. Simultaneously with the appearance of the monumental Herald and Fleetwood volume, which had been ready by 1992. Is that me or your... It's you. No, that's all right. That must have been a great sense of relief to you, Mr. Yale. Do you recall how you felt after almost 33 years of working on this project? Are we talking about any particular... This was 1993 when you retired. 1992, yes. Yes, from, yes, you retired and the yes, I see. volume... Yes, I see. I'm just finding where I am. Oh, Yes, there's one of the page here, yeah, yes. That's right. Yes. Well, I left two years earlier, as uh, I mentioned. Was that because you... But, but, but by that time, I'd done 40 years in university post and various grades. So I thought that 40 years is the maximum which you can still... Uh, ring up for pension purposes. I gave I, I gave up a salary, of course, and turned over to a pension, and, uh, which wasn't an advantage straight away, but it gave me uh, uh, two years, in effect, to uh, leave. Yes, and did you come here? Yes, we did. Mm. Yes. yes, we'd all kept half the house here for holiday purposes. And we divided the hall there and people were tenants in the wing which runs along there. And we were able to keep the ownership of the building. And when we came back, we reintegrated it into one house. And that, that was quite a job to, uh, as it were, had it pull down things and re rewire and re-roof and all the rest. At the same time that you made this decision, you had just recently seen the publication of the Hale and Fleetwood. Was mm. that a great relief to you, to see that published? I think it was, yes, because we've been at it so long and it had taken a sort of uh, a decision of some magnitude get out anything at all. That we managed to get out what we got out by changing the terms of reference, really. Yes. I don't know whether we acted honestly or dishonestly in that. Dishonestly in the sense that it was to our convenience. Uh, something was done and was uh, at least respectable 
but not what was originally designed or promoted as desirable, which was a general history, not a jurisdictional analysis of the legal history. Right. Nowadays, the, the mercantile matters of sea, ships and cargoes and all the rest of it been entirely absorbed into the common law courts. The civilians don't exist any longer. The civil law has no part to play. All that is left is a section in the White Book, which is the official compendium of procedural matters in the High Court, which gives the in rem procedure to a High Court judge sitting in Admiralty. He's still able to order the arrest of a ship. You know, stick a writ to the mast, as it were. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the old style of arresting a ship. Yes. And that's still a, a genuine fragment of Admiralty right. law still available. Yes. But the general scene of things has been obliterated as from being a civil law court to a court of common law. Right. So, um, Mr. Year, with a sense of relief, you retired to this beautiful home in the depths of Wales, the land of your forefathers, and you were then um, appointed uh, or elected as president of the Selden Society, you uh, were Selden, yes. in 1994. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> can you uh, re recall the circumstances of this honour? Not really, except that it has been a an understanding that the of ever since the early days uh, that the job of being president should be uh, rotated uh, round uh, the judiciary and the bar and also the academic side of the uh, thing, of thing, so that uh, different interests uh, are involved. In, uh, it's a two, two or three year term, I forget which. So there's plenty of chance to, as it were, change the chairmanship of the, of, of, of the whole outfit, the presidency, in other words, presides over the meetings. The, um, and on the whole, that's worked pretty well, but I don't know who's, at the moment, it's, uh, the chairman is Nicholas Le Potovin, who is uh, uh, QC in Chancery in New Square in Lincoln's Inn. And he's very suitable because he's got a, foots, a footstep in the uh, yearbook series as well. He's writing up a medieval yearbook and producing that one day, it'll appear, no doubt. But uh, he's uh, he's someone who has academic credentials as well as being a, 
read a, um, a, a practicing lawyer in Lincoln's Inn. And you, you, if you read a, in the, the guide, you you get the names of all these people down the, the ages ever since uh, it was established uh, um, 120 years odd years ago. There's a, there's a cycle of different qualified persons. So, in uh, 1999, the Selden Society initiated the David Yale Prize of the Selden Society as a further honour to commemorate your distinguished services. And uh, I wonder if you can comment on the circumstances of this award and any outstanding awardees that have since received it. Yes, well, that is uh, a, um, a sum of money which was accepted as a, by various contributors to found a, a prize for beginners, really, who would perhaps find it difficult to uh, get published, but who were able to produce an article or something of that sort which was worth a, a prize of a, a few hundred pounds, I suppose, for a, a, a suitable submission. So, uh, yes, um, uh, Neil, Neil Jones was awarded the prize in 2003 mm -hmm. for his piece on the use upon a use in equity revisited. Who? Neil Jones. Neil Did Jones it? was awarded the prize in 2003, yes, mm. yes. Well, it's been going for about 15 or 20 years, I suppose. Right. Uh, you were made an honorary QC in 2000. Are there any duties attached to this? Not really, no. It's honoris causa, you know. If, um, you attend a creation of QCs. You get quite a mob of people. Most of them are dressed in wigs and so forth. And they're the real QCs for whom this is a professional promotion. And then you have a few people like myself who are not working in the profession as such, but who are deemed worthy to receive the honour of the rank, and it is an honoris causa. It's not the real thing, as they say <laughs> at the bar. The real silk is different from the artificial silk. I'm an artificial silk, <laughs> oh. and um, it's the same thing uh, as you get in the university when you get in the summer proceedings at the commencement. Uh, some people dressed up as doctors of law on Oris Casa. Well, some of them, if you will look closely at them, are very distinguished persons, but they don't know any law at all and never have done. But they're there because it is on Oris Casa. It's an honorary thing. Yes. They're not, they're, they have no rights and no duties at all, but they're just given the rank for the purpose of 
you know, good fellowship on the day. Right. And and as a permanent mark of regard right. and appreciation. So that's really where I, in a sense, fit in. I'm not a professional QC. I'm a, as it were, a QC by, uh, as a mark of respect. The, uh, the occasion I was on the line was uh, one in which I was hanging on to uh, Nelson Mandela's coattails because he came all the way from South Africa to receive an honorary QC and I happened to be number two in the line of four persons. There was a, a criminologist after me and someone else from somewhere else as <laughs> the fourth, fourth rank. We were all singled out, as it were, not for our legal merit, in a sense, strictly professional promotion, because you'd all got large. We had, we were all, the whole crowd of people there were people who had acquired big practices in the law. That doesn't apply to any of the honorary QCs. Understand. Uh, a final point about this period of your retirement, a final point. Uh, in his interview in 2012, Michael Pritchard mentioned that he was involved in an arbitration in the early 2000s that concerned the mining rights in the Lordship of Bromfield and Yale. Oh, yeah. And that they called you in for help, Mr. Yale. And this was after you had retired to Snowdonia. Yes, I was asked to um, come in as a historian rather than as a lawyer to dig into the records and to good I could give what help I might to the case of the Groveners. It's the Westminster estate. Right. What had happened was that in the time of Charles I, the Crown had given to the then Groveners, later Duke of Westminster and all that, the rights to all minor minerals within the old lordships, Marcham lordships of Bromfield and Yale. Yale is a, a district up in the Devon, Denbyshire Hills, Bromfield also nearby. And these were challenged by the Crown recently, the, the, the grant, the extent of the grant and what it meant, whether it included quarries, whether it included this or didn't include that, and all the sort of questions were raised about it. And it was a contention between the Crown 
the state, you might say, and the Grosvenor family, who are, of course, well-known because of the extent of their financial wealth. Sideline to them, perhaps, mines and minerals in North Wales from a limited scale, but there it is. We were employed by the Grosvenor interest. And we did a certain amount of work. But the whole thing was settled. Eventually it became clear that um, the, the, the um, Crown was probably not going to win, or didn't win as much as it thought. So that they agreed to a settlement, they just paid out to the Groveners, and a settlement sum, and the, the litigation finished before it was decided. And the Groveners are fin uh, entitled thereby in this territory to mines and minerals, which is not as extensive as one might think, because uh, if you if you dig up gold and silver, and if you find oil and have a gusher, you're no better off now because those things are by either common law or statute vested in the crown. But there's still quite a lot of mineral wealth to be had in North Wales. And, uh, if it's, even if it's only a limestone quarry or something like that, and certainly you, you might get uh, slates and such like. Silicon. So there's a, there was quite a lot of money at stake, development potential at stake. But as I say, the thing collapsed because the Crown came to the conclusion it wasn't going to get what it wanted. And it was willing to, to take a sum of money from the Groveners. and hand over the title to them. Well, that brings us to the end of this truly fascinating account of your early life, your academic mm. career, and I'm greatly looking forward to discussing your scholarly mm. work in our next conversation. Cool. Thank you so much, Mr. Yale. The only other great thing great. I can add is that Michael has forgotten various other episodes we had with the state, we had to advise the Foreign Office on one occasion about the contents of a Spanish uh, galleon wrecked off the coast of Antrim in Ireland. Of course, they were all, all anxious to know whether any bits of gold or silver recovered from the wreck was uh, disposable by the law of wreck, or whether it was still the property of the Spanish government, or the property of a deceased Spanish admiral who was drowned. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with the stuff. And we <laughs> had the rather daunting task of saying what we thought they ought to do, or could do in legal terms, by freezing and uh, 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 their fingers over the, 
the uh, the, the wreck. <laughs> that is very interesting. Mm. But you get all sorts of such questions flung at you. That's because we've we've got a reputation for knowing something about Admiralty law. Yes. But it was a much wider question than Admiralty law there. Indeed. It's about uh, it's really about the position of archaeologists who go down below the low water mark. <laughs> Well, well, have we taken all the points of your paper? We have indeed, and I, I think it might be an idea to break. Would that be fine? I think it might be an idea to have a break before we yes, tackle sir. the scholarly work. I think so, yes.